last week that, uh, that they would play the Jaws music at the very end of that. I've, I've just been waiting for it. But, uh, well, hey, my name's Dave. I'm one of our pastors here. And it's just really good to be with you tonight. Uh, really grateful for Kevin and the crew for leading us wor- in worship tonight. Can we thank them? That was great. And I see a lot of new faces out there. So I would love to be able to say hi to you after the service out in the... Uh, out there in the lobby. That'd be great just to get to meet you. So glad you guys are all here. And tonight we'll be wrapping up our series on the book of Jonah. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, that you know this book simply isn't about Jonah, but it's also about us. And it's about how we are responding to God who is calling each and every one of us. But it's not simply just about Jonah, and it's not simply about us. It's ultimately about God. It's ultimately about Him. And if I were to attempt to summarize the entire message of this book into one sentence, here's what it would be. God is boundless in compassion, not just for us, but for them. In other words, God doesn't just love and forgive and extend grace to people who are insiders like Jonah and the Israelites or good church people maybe like some of us, but to everyone. In chapter 1, we see that these pagan sailors are the recipients of God's great compassion. In chapter 3, last week, we saw that the Ninevites were the recipients of God's great compassion. And as we discovered, there is no such thing as them when it comes to how God sees us. There is no them. In God's eyes, there aren't those people, nameless people we stereotype or lump together. No, every person is made in God's image and has inherent dignity. Every single human being. God loves all of us, and because he loves every person everywhere, he calls us to love and have compassion on every person everywhere, just like he does. Ephesians 5.1 tells us that we are to be imitators of God. And if God is the God of compassion, and we are imitating him, then we are to be people of compassion. We're to be vehicles of God's compassion to people everywhere. We're to be his hands and feet and his heart. And God is big-hearted. He's really big-hearted. And he overflows with compassion. That's who our God is. And that's who he desires for us to become. But we live in a time when we are becoming dangerously less capable of showing compassion than ever before. A recent study from the University of Michigan's Institute of Social Research looked at 72 studies of empathy among American college students over the past 30 years. They found that empathy, which is the ability to identify with others and to relate to their feelings, has dropped an incredible 40% since 2000. In other words, a college student today is 40% less likely to be empathetic than they were just 14 years ago. I was a college student between 2002 and 2006, and I can say a lot of college students weren't all that empathetic. So it's a scarier thing today that people are able to step into, or not able to step in people's shoes like they used to. And there's four main reasons for this, why we're less empathetic. The first reason is that we live in a technology-driven, isolated kind of world. We surround ourselves in front of screens so much, and we interact so much online or or in front of a device that we've lost our ability to really relate with others and sense what's happening in them. I think a lot of us can understand what they're talking about. The second thing is a generational sense 
of entitlement. A lot of us who are younger think that we are so stinking awesome that we deserve what it took our parents decades to kind of acquire, and we should have it right now. Uh, There's a little bit of that happening. As an only child, kind of growing up like that, I know I have a little bit of that myself. The third reason is social media's ability to call attention to ourselves. I think we can summarize this one in one word. (laughs) Selfie, right? We're obsessed with getting attention to ourselves. I was just having uh, a meal with a 19-year-old uh, student just the other, other day, and, uh, and he wanted to Snapchat a picture of me and him on, uh, you know, at the restaurant. And Snapchatting, if you don't know what that is, is like your picture, it, it like goes online and dissolves in 10 seconds. That was the first time I've ever Snapchatted. It was pretty awesome. But we were t- t- you know, taking a selfie like this, and I said, oh, it's me and you. So a plural of selfie is a weeby, right? Like, this is a weeby? <laughs> he said, no. No, absolutely not. That's it. All right. Cool. Picture's disappearing 10 seconds anyways. Who cares? All right. Uh, and then the last thing is this winning is everything kind of sports culture that we find ourselves in. Trying to get these huge paydays for those who climb to the tops of their fields. We're really all about winning. And we want to climb to the top. And so we don't pay any bit of attention to those who might be after the same things that we're after. So while empathy, which again is the ability to identify with others and relate to their feelings, is not the same thing as compassion, which we're talking about. And compassion, to define it, would be the ability to recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help. While these two things are not the same, they're really closely related. I think we could say compassion is empathy with action. It's not simply identifying with what other people are going through, but doing something about it. But if we can't even begin to step inside someone else's skin and empathetically understand what life is like for them, then we can't show compassion. And if we can't show compassion, then we will not be able to connect and grow closer to our God who is a God of compassion. And our God is boundless in compassion, and so he calls us to be compassionate. So if we cannot be compassionate people who are not continually growing in compassion, we're going to be missing out on the mission that God has for us, which is to experience life with him as we show compassion to other people. And because as a pastor, my hope, my prayer, my whole purpose is that all of us would experience this kind of life with God personally and fully, here's what I hope all of us would understand tonight. It's a simple, a simple principle, but here's what it is. What keeps us from compassion is what keeps us from God. What keeps us from being compassionate is what keeps us from being closer to God. These things that keep us from being compassionate are the things that stand in the way of of us loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves. These things trip us up, they slow us down, and they get in the way of what matters most. So tonight, my hope is that we can help identify the areas of our lives or maybe the underdeveloped parts of our hearts that keep us from being as compassionate as God intends for us to be. And that if we could remove these things from our lives, we could get closer to God than maybe ever before. And there is nothing better than living a life with God in close relationship as we follow him and respond to his call. I promise you that. 
So to help us identify what keeps us from being more compassionate, tonight we're going to look at the last chapter here of Jonah. We're going to break it down in the first four verses and then the last uh, about seven verses. And we'll see that the things that prevent Jonah from being more compassionate are probably the things that are keeping us from living with more compassion. And these are the things that keep us from getting closer to our compassionate God. So let's begin here uh, by picking up the Jonah story at the end of chapter 3. And we'll read on through, through verse 4 here of chapter 4. So when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon the Ninevites. And he did not do it. Remember, Jonah, after he gets spit out from the whale, he ends up going to Nineveh and actually telling them that if they don't repent, if they don't change their ways, change their attitude toward God, that God was going to really bring a bunch of calamity upon them. And so the people surprisingly repent. They change their ways. And let's see what Jonah's response is. But this was very disappointing to Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Let's pause here. So this passage begins with Jonah wrestling with God over how the Lord treated the Ninevites. I think all of us have wrestled with God, maybe been angry at God for different things. But here Jonah is angry with God because these people repented from their ways and asked the Lord's forgiveness. And, the, and God actually responded by stopping the calamity that he was planning. The lesson here is that God will relent when people repent. God will relent when people repent. To repent simply means to change the ways that you've been thinking and you've been acting. And when you do that before God, wanting what he wants instead of what you want, God's anger relents. And, God, and Jonah thought that this might be possible, and he didn't want this to be the case whatsoever. He wanted God his way. He wanted God to do what he wanted. And a lot of us do the same, don't we? A lot of us do the same. And we get disappointed and we sulk when God doesn't do what we want him to do. But as people who are quite small in comparison with our big God, we must remember that God might not be who we think he is. He might not be who we think he should be. He might not be who we want him to be. But God is greater than anything we could imagine. And God is better than anything we could ever want. And this is what God is trying to help Jonah understand as he asks him this question. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Now, 11, 11 times in this book of Jonah, which is a pretty short book, God is asking Jonah a question. And I think God tries to ask us questions to get our attention, to help us discover some of the blind spots in our lives that maybe we ordinarily wouldn't, for, wouldn't think about. When I was a youth pastor, Anytime a student would do something really stupid, I would always have this question ready for them. Could you help me understand what about this seemed like a good idea to you? Could you understand what, what about this just seemed like a wise thing? 
I remember my first uh, real full-time youth pastor gig was right after college, and uh, my first assignment was to take this handful of, of college students, or sorry, of high school students to this uh, college in Pennsylvania to do mission work in Philadelphia. And uh, toward the end of the week, there was one kid, he was a, he was a pretty big kid, about 5'8", about 270. He got this idea that, that I'm going to try and get as sweaty as I can, take my shirt off, and then smear peanut butter all over me, and then run around and try and give littler kids hugs. So, so I, get, I get the phone call here. Hey, you got one of your students running around, bare-chested, sweaty, covered in peanut butter. And so I finally tracked this guy down and managed to not let him give me a hug, by the way. And I said, dude, what about this seemed like a good idea to you? And his response I couldn't find any jelly. <laughs> While that question didn't work so well for him, a lot of times we ask these questions to help, help us, and God asks us these questions to help us understand things that we might not catch if he just tells us, hey, this is wrong in your life, change something about this. He wants to help us discover what it is. And so he's trying to get to the bottom of what's really going on in Jonah's life so that can, Jonah can grow in the right way. He's trying to help Jonah see what everyone else sees, but he's missing. And so God says, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Now, anger is a significant theme in this chapter. In, in 11 verses, the word anger is used six times, which means the writer's trying to get our attention about anger. And he's even trying to get us to pay attention about what makes us angry. Anger is a very useful diagnostic tool. As a counselor, my wife likes to help her clients get more in touch with what they're feeling and their emotions because a lot of times we can learn a lot about ourselves based upon what we're feeling and as we interpret those things wisely. So she has the five-finger check-in that she likes to have her clients do. And I, since I'm married to a counselor, often do a five-finger check-in. And this is kind of asking ourselves these questions. What makes me mad or angry? What makes me sad? What makes me glad or happy? What makes me afraid? And what makes me ashamed? Mad, glad, sad, angry, or mad, glad, sad, afraid, and ashamed. And these things help me realize what's going on in my heart and my soul from all the circumstances of life that I might have otherwise not paid attention to. But anger, that first thing, when we think about what's making me mad, anger can tell us a lot. Anger tells us that something is wrong. When we're angry, it tells us that something is wrong. Something's not right. It's not as it should be. We normally begin believing that the problem is somewhere outside of the, us. Like something out there is causing us to be angry. Like maybe the government is corrupt. People are greedy. That person is so stinking awful. Those Yankee fans, you know? And sometimes the issue, though, we discover, does lie outside of us. It could be that that something's wrong. You know, we see that sometimes anger is actually okay. You know, when Jesus stepped into the temple and he found that this place that was called to be a house of prayer was turned into a den of thieves, what does he do? He starts flipping the tables over and saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. Sometimes anger is justified and it's the fitting response. But other times we find that anger is all about something that's wrong within our hearts. Maybe it's something wrong inside of us. Our anger can sometimes rise our own issues to the surface. And that's what's happening here with Jonah. 
His issue is that he has an underdeveloped heart. His heart for others in no way reflects God's heart and compassion for everyone. Jonah's anger reveals his own spiritual poverty. His spiritual poverty is what ignites his anger, and his anger is what keeps him from compassion, and his lack of compassion is what keeps him from God. And that's why he runs off. He runs away from the city, as we'll see, in an attempt to distance himself from God. What keeps him acting from, from acting compassionately is what's keeping him from acting and be compassionately toward God and keeping him from God. But let's try and make this question a little bit more personal. Is it right for you to be angry right now? Is it right for you to be angry now? Over the last few weeks, what has made you the most angry? Who has made you the most angry? What are you upset about right now? Now let's think about this anger as your own diagnostic tool. Your anger is telling you that something is wrong. In what ways is this anger the result of something that's happening outside of you? Or in what ways is this anger the result of something happening inside of you? Is it right for you to be angry? If not, confess to God why. In what ways might your heart toward God and others still be underdeveloped? I hope you take some time to really think about that because that will reveal a whole lot of the areas in which you can grow to be more like God. But let's continue with the story. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and for which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And I should, not, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also many animals? So Jonah leaves the city in a sulk, kind of sulking in his anger. This is what's known as ATT. ATT. That stands for an adult temper tantrum. That's what's happening here. This is an adult temper tantrum. And the Jonah story tells us that those of us who are grown-ups are not immune from these, okay? We can have them in various forms as well. And so God arranges these, this leafy bush to kind of cool Jonah, to get him out of his angry sulk, and it seemed to work. It said he's happy. But then the next day he sends this worm 
Um, it's kind of a, interesting to imagine what this worm is like here that can take down a whole bush in this hot, in this hot you know, breeze, and it kills off the bush, it withers, it dies. And then what's Jonah's reaction to this now that his, his bush is gone? He said, I'm better off dead. That's what he's saying. I'm better off dead. The technical term for this reaction is drama queen. <laughs> like, this is so annoying. I cannot believe this. Oh. Surprise. Hey, Tim, thanks for telling him to laugh. I was going to say, never do that again, but thanks for this. Yeah, he's being kind of dramatic, overly dramatic about this. So God steps in again with his question. Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah says, I'm so angry that I could die. And then God makes his point to Jonah. You are upset about this bush and show compassion toward it, but you aren't showing compassion to these people who are worth far more than any plant. And you're trying to get upset with me, Jonah, and I'm concerned with the well-being of this great city, which has 120,000 people in it. And these people do not know their right from their left, Jonah. You show compassion toward this plant, but not toward these people. What is going on here? Now, this phrase that they don't know their right from their left is not like they didn't make it past kindergarten, couldn't quite, okay, what are we supposed to do here? No, this, this kind of phrase is an idiom that means they were really morally and spiritually unaware. They're, they're unaware. These people didn't really know what they were doing. Now, over my years in ministry, I've met a lot of folks that just seemed like they were downright mean and they hurt people and, and they just said some nasty things. And these are people both inside uh, the church and, and outside, but it's hard for me to understand how Christians could be like that. And then I started to kind of talk to some of these people that have a lot of anger like this. And, and one of the things I discovered as I heard their stories is most of these people were not just angry for the sake of being angry but they had something done to them that severely hurt them. And I started to discover that hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. And as I started to realize that, even some of the sourest folks deserved my love, deserved my compassion, because there was more going on that I could see. And I think God is trying to help Jonah realize these people are spiritually unaware. There might be more going on than you realize. Show some compassion to them. They didn't know what they were doing. They did not know what they were doing. That sounds kind of a lot like a significant event that happened in the New Testament, doesn't it? That they knew not what they did. In Matthew 12, Jesus connects himself with Jonah. He's indicating that he is a far greater and better Jonah by saying this here from Matthew 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Noah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus connects himself with the Jonah story and is the greater Jonah. And what does Jesus say as he hung there dying on the cross from those folks that actually put him through that excruciating death? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they did. Jesus extends compassion to these people who might probably didn't know their right from their left as well. And Jesus is the picture of who God wants Jonah to become, someone so compassionate even toward the worst of enemies. 
When I was reading about what happens here in the Ukraine lately, there's been uh, a great, uh, some great things shared by some of the evangelical leaders there, and, and somebody said that today we need to learn to love yesterday's enemies. That's compassion. That's compassion. Nothing kept Jesus from compassion, and thus nothing kept him from the Father. But now that we've explored the story a bit, let's ask, what keeps Jonah from showing compassion? Because what keeps him from being compassionate is probably what's keeping us from being more compassionate. And what keeps us from compassion keeps us from God. So let me offer four things that are ultimately one thing that keeps Jonah from compassion. And the first is this, depersonalization. Depersonalization. That's essentially just a big word that says when we reduce people from those who have names and families and, and real relationships to being those people, to being them, those folks over there. When we depersonalize people, we end up stereotyping them. We make them less than who we are. But when we tend to stereotype people, we also tend to stereotype God. And when we, uh, we depersonalize him, we, depers or we stereotype God into being just this abstract idea or just being this, this concept out there. And you can't love an abstraction or a concept. You love a person. And we need to love people. There's no such thing as them. Depersonalization is the first thing. Secondly, and this is one I really want to lean into, competitiveness keeps us from compassion. Competitiveness keeps us from compassion. For Jonah, his nationalistic spirit, that his nation and people were far better and more important than others, kept him from wanting the best for the Ninevite people, which is for them to know God. He didn't want to give his enemies the advantages that he had, which was knowing the Lord. But I think competitiveness is one of the most unspoken sins in the church today, especially among pastors. Here in America, we are bred to compete, aren't we? At the earliest stages, we find ourselves ranked in school, ranked in sports, ranked in the arts, and the way to the top is to outperform, to outdo, to outlast, and to win, and to win. No one is permitted to be a loser. We want to be the best, and we are told to be the best, and we aren't given any alternative. But this competitive spirit doesn't translate so well into the Christian life, does it? Jesus says all these subversive things about ranking. He says, if you want to be the greatest, become the servant of all. He says, the first will be last and the last will be first. How do we become competitive and live in his kingdom like that? Competitiveness gets in the way of compassion. You can't want the best for those you want to beat. One of the spiritual leaders that I have learned the most from, and if you've ever heard me preach, you hear me say his name, and it's Dallas Willard. Here's what he said this a few months before he died. He said, we as human beings have this awful tendency of sizing one another up. We as human beings have this awful, awful tendency to size each other up. We do this online all the time. The only who has more friends or followers or, or you know, fans or whatever else online. We do this when we meet somebody new. Maybe somebody here, we start to see, okay, who's probably more successful, who's better looking, you know, who's got better behaved kids, who lives in a nicer suburban town, who, who is better, how do we rank? 
We do this all the time. We size each other up. But when we size each other up, we prevent ourselves from loving each other. And when we prevent ourselves from loving, we distance ourselves from the God of love. So depersonalization keeps us from compassion. Competitiveness keeps us from compassion. And the things that keep us from compassion keep us from God. Thirdly, possessiveness keeps us from compassion. Possessiveness says that I want it all to myself. Jonah was pretty possessive of his God. He did not want his God to be the God of the Ninevites. He hated them. And this possessiveness kept him from showing that kind of compassion to them. And like Jonah, we want to keep a lot of things to ourselves, don't we? Our first words, maybe your first words when you were interacting like with another kid, when you're like a, like a little kid and you're all going for the same toys, whatever that might be, what do you normally say if it's yours and somebody wants it? Mine. Not a lot of love, not a lot of compassion in the word mine, is there? We say mine. We believe our lives are ours, and we want them for what we want. We want our dreams, not God's. We want relationships our way, not his. We want to decide who we want to love, not who God wants us to love. We want life to be done our way, and we try to get anything out of the way that keeps us from getting our own way, including what God wants. And as long as we think our lives are our own and do not give them to God for his calling and purposes— we will be kept from compassion and kept from growing closer to him. I heard this said, and it's so profound, that we cannot honestly and genuinely pray, thy kingdom come, unless we also pray, my kingdom go. Cannot pray, thy kingdom come, unless we pray, my kingdom go. So possessiveness keeps us from compassion. And then lastly, self, the God of self, keeps us from compassion. Self is our most common substitute God, and the worship of this God consists in trying to fulfill one's own holy wants, holy needs, and holy feelings. We see Jonah worshiping self when he deliberately does what he wants to do, trying to go to Tarshish instead of going where God wants, to Nineveh. We see Jonah being selfish when he's just sitting there under the plant, living the, the good life for like one day, and not caring a thing about anybody else. We can never be completely compassionate toward others when we live like it's all about me. Self says that what I want is more important than what God wants. Self says that I'm so important that of course God would want me to be well-known and to receive all this attention. Self says I'm entitled to what I want. Can you see how this God of self keeps us from compassion? Can you see how this God of self keeps us from God? The God of self will let you down and keep you from God. So depersonalization keeps us from compassion. Competitiveness, sizing ourselves up, keeps us from compassion. Possessiveness keeps us from compassion. And self keeps us from compassion. But I said these four things are ultimately one thing. And this one thing is sin. These are all sin. Sin it's what keeps us from God. Sin is disobedience to him. It's missing the mark on the very thing and the very best that God has for us and instead trading it in for some cheap substitute like we really think we know what's best. Sin is what keeps us from compassion and sin is what keeps us from God. 
Eugene Peterson writes this about sin. He says, sin is a refused relationship with God that spills over into a wrong relationship with others. Sin is a refused relationship with God. It's saying, I want my way instead of his. I'm trusting that I know what's best for me instead of him. And it keeps us from loving others. So what God is trying to address with Jonah is Jonah's sin. And God wants Jonah to repent from the sin in his life that's left his heart so underdeveloped. And he shows Jonah great compassion. And he wants to show great compassion to us as well. So how does Jonah respond to this? Well, we don't know. This is one of those like stories that doesn't end. It doesn't have an ending. And it's pretty frustrating like this because I don't know about you. I want to know what Jonah does. The story ends without an ending. And this is something that a lot of biblical writers do. The book of Mark, it doesn't end with a real ending. The book of Acts doesn't end with a resolved ending because the story of Jesus doesn't end just with Jesus it's supposed to continue on through each of us. The parable of the prodigal son doesn't end with a story. You know, the lost son comes back and the older brother is trying to decide if he's going to come back and celebrate this son who was lost but who's now found his brother. And I think his attitude is a lot like Jonah's here. Will Jonah show compassion? Will he come out of his angry sulk and see things God's way? What do you think? I'm the kind of guy that likes a good ending. So I'm going to say, you know what, Jonah probably eventually calmed down. He kind of let all that emotion just kind of trickle away from him. He kind of cooled down and realized, oh my goodness, God's been trying to get my attention with the whale, with this bush. I mean, he really wants me to have a heart like his, and he actually repents and tries to have a heart like God's. And I want to believe that because I want to believe that each and every one of us would finish our Jonah story in the same way, becoming more compassionate people so that we could be closer to our compassionate God. I'd love for all of us to, to believe this, all of us to live this way, because what keeps us from compassion keeps us from God. And I believe that this type of ending for us, that we'd be these kind of people, is actually possible because someone greater than Jonah is here and his name is Jesus. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves and that is to free us from our sin, the very thing that keeps us from compassion and keeps us from him. And so what is the sin in your life that's keeping you from living more compassionately? What's keeping you from saying yes to the calling that God has for you? Are you too self-absorbed, too competitive, too insistent on your way, too possessive? Jesus has made the way for you and for me to be freed and to be forgiven. So ask for his forgiveness. Change how you think and live. Receive God's love. Look to Jesus, for it's Jesus who transforms us to be more compassionate. It's Jesus who draws us to that closer relationship to the Father. It's Jesus who has written the ending to our stories. And it's life with him forever. And it's more than you could ever want. And it is better than any of us could ever imagine. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that he is the greater Jonah. But thank you for this story of Jonah. 
that reveals the parts of our lives that we would rather ignore. God, forgive us for how we try and keep you at a safe distance. Forgive us for how we only want to love and live in ways that are comfortable, that are convenient. Help us rebel against our own apathy and our own indifference and become people who have big, loving hearts like you do. May we be big-hearted people for people everywhere. And thank you for what Jesus has done, freeing us, forgiving us. And so we want to look to him now. And as we look to him, Lord, may, through your Holy Spirit, may you help us to become like him. And it's in his great name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.